0: Welcome to the Film Links Podcast. A bi-weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 87, Disney Doesn't Die. And joining us today is one Aaron Johnson, the Animaniac.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. I'm either Yakko, Wacko, or Dot, or I'm all three. Yeah, I not the
2: to say, <laughs> it sounds like three. you're all three, man.
1: That'll work. Oh man.
2: All right, Aaron, so <laughs> you are here to talk about um a company. This is kind of like an interesting theme that you've picked out because usually we focus on a director or a type of film or something like that but this is more of like an era yeah. uh, in animation history so why don't you kind of set us up for kind of what we're going to be diving into today.
1: Oh well this is just a little indie company uh, I, I think you've heard of their movies at uh, uh, Disney Um sometime in the Brings late 80s I think I think like, like they were they're kind of big, but you know, I don't think everybody's you know caping for them. But in the late 80s there was this um, this idea that animation um, was just for kids and the the reflection had this very cheap looking kind of you know attitude Towards the business as a whole, and Disney suffered greatly in what a lot of people would call the Dark Ages. But interestingly enough, this will um, dive into the, both the Dark Ages and the Renaissance era, which you know every '90s kid ever always refers to. So this is going to be a yeah, very all interesting three of time. Us
2: fall into that,
1: yeah, for real. '90s babies, what's up?
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: So uh, there's there's some influences that actually brought around the D- Dark Age of Disney. As we all know, the first Golden Age of Disney happened during the 30s and the 40s, especially during World War II when Disney was just pumping out all of these classics. Um, think like the classic Disney princesses, Snow White uh, and the Seven Dwarfs, Cinderella, and... Um, going up into the 50s and the 60s with stuff like 101 Dalmatians, which is sometimes marked as the end of the golden era, um, and sometimes Jungle Book is marked as the end of the golden era because that's the last uh, film that Walt Disney himself actually contributed to. Uh, And so a couple of uh, influences came about to bring about the end of the golden era of Disney uh, in the mid to late 60s there. Um, with the death of Walt Disney, so he was no longer involved with the uh, production itself, and, of course, the introduction of processes that, while it made the animation cheaper, also made it, well, look cheaper, including uh, uh, the ability to Xerox the backgrounds over and over rather than having to paint the background each time, Um, which
2: made... Which is why in a lot of the Golden Era films, you can, like you can tell which items are about to move right. because there's a distinct difference between the items that are animated and the items that are strictly part of the matte painting.
0: Yeah. And so the whole effect kind of led to a cheapening of animation and it kind of put it into, like you said, Aaron, into this kind of kids genre to which it's kind of never really resuscitated. Even now there's like a, uh, a, you know, there's the animated, uh, animated best picture of the year right. award at the Oscars. Um, which is kind of like putting uh, animated films in a camp to say that they can never, ever win a Best Oscar because they will always win the Best Animated Oscar, um, which is interesting. Thank
1: you, Disney.
2: Yeah, but also um, around the same time after Disney dies, there were creative differences. Uh, There was a lot of um, kind of like Politic issues in the executives at Disney, um, but also some of the creatives, uh, most notably probably Don Bluth, uh, left the studio and started his own animation studio, which provided a lot of competition for Disney, and his films were getting better reviews than the Disney films in that time period. Um, oh, there's some and then, good Don Booth movies out there. <laughs> they oh, all yeah. involve but, mice. Yeah. And yeah. then <laughs> Disney releases The Black Cauldron, uh, aka the film that almost killed Disney. And it made about half of its budget back and uh, almost completely sunk the studio. And so, after uh, a little bit of a process, which we're going to be talking about, that's this is kind of the. the uh, Focus of our episode today is from the Black Cauldron to the, the Disney Renaissance proper, which begins with uh, The Little Mermaid. So, uh, why don't you guys tell us what films we're going to be talking about?
0: Well, first up today, Jonathan, we've got, of course, The Black Cauldron from 1985, uh, directed by Ted Berman and Richard Rich. It's got a bit of a cult following these days, um, but really, I'm just here for Gurgi. Yes. Oh, oh, Gergie. Uh I think you said Gollum wrong, oh. Alex. Oh no, Gergie. Uh He's the only <laughs> character with an arc in the whole movie. But
1: it's true. Yeah, it's he does true. have an arc.
2: We're going to talk about a lot of arcs today. Yeah, of um, Aaron, what is the oh. second film? Which is not technically <laughs> yeah, a Disney it's, film.
1: Um, it's a wonderful combination of a lot of different creatives. It's the great Who Framed Roger Rabbit from 1988, directed by Robert Zemeckis, and oh my gosh. So much, just a lot to unpack here, but um, you've got some makers, you've got Disney, you've got Warner Brothers, you've got Steven Spielberg, just a lot of, you know, different things. You have the great animator Richard Williams, just a lot to unpack here, and oh, it's, I don't want to give too much away before we get into it, but just, we're, we're in for a treat.
2: Yeah, and as far as Oscars, this film won Best Film Editing, Best Sound Effects, Best Visual Effects. Uh, and a special achievement for animation direction, as well as being nominated for best cinematography, best set decoration, and best sound. So it was uh, it was noticed when here. it was released. Um, and then we'll be moving on. Uh, The last film, as I've already said, will be The Little Mermaid from 1989, directed by Ron Clements and John Musker, uh, which at the Oscars won for Best Original Song, uh, Under the Sea, and Best Original Score uh, by Alan Menken. And it was also nominated for another original song, which is Kiss the Girl. Uh, And we're definitely going to have to talk about uh, Disney's music, which is one of the big hallmarks of the Disney Mm -hmm. renaissance. Um, But before we do that... Let's talk about what almost killed Disney with The Black Cauldron
3: from 1985. The Black Cauldron from 1985. Terran works as an assistant pig keeper in the land of Pradane. His boss, Dalbin, the Enchanter, has been hiding that one of his pigs, Henwin, has the powers of an oracle and discovers through her that the evil horned king is searching for the Black Cauldron, an artifact that can create an undead army. Unfortunately, Henwyn's vision alerts the Horned King to her existence, and fearing for her safety, Dolvin sends Terran and Henwyn to hide in the woods. But Terran's tendencies soon lead him and Henwyn back into the clutches of the Horned King, and a whirlwind of adventure to stop his evil plans and make it home in one piece. Along the way, they meet the pestering and ape-like Gurgi, the strong-willed Princess Ellenwy, and the elder bard Fluter Flam. Even with the help of these new companions and newly uncovered magics and weapons, will Terran and Henwyn be able to stop the Horned King? And will Terran become the hero he's always dreamed of being?
2: Okay, Aaron. Black Cauldron is uh, an interesting film. Why don't you uh, tell us what its place in Disney history
1: is? Oh, this is the movie that almost killed Disney. Uh, uh, I think it was, what, eighty. Five. yeah 1985 yep. Yeah, um, this movie had a lot of money put into it like you said earlier uh, and only got half of their budget back and a lot of jobs got lost thanks to this movie uh, the director um, he quit in anger uh, they lost um, Don Bluth uh, Tim Burton left as well from the Disney Studio, but you know, there's a lot to uncover there. Um, this was their attempt at making a dark yet epic um, sort of let's just let's just say it Lord of the Rings style story, yeah. Um, based off of some novels, uh, you know, in the in the big uh, heyday of a lot of different um, Tolkien-esque, you know stories copycats coming out Um, no disrespect to the writers but this movie in particular because disney's um, executives and storytellers decided they want to do something just a little different they didn't want to take too much away from from their own stories and they wanted to keep the brand Uh, it left a lot of risk not taken Uh, Because this movie, I think, was passed around throughout the studio for like ten years, at least ten years. Oh wow! uh, During the time right before they did Aristocats, so that should let you know how long they were, you know, kicking this around, and it just made this this mesh of like a story that really didn't. They didn't know what they wanted to be, and. The plucky comic relief of the story, as Alex says, and I totally agree, has the greatest character arc of the entire film because, oh, man. <laughs> oh, man.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm assuming both of you guys had seen this movie before, right? Before this week?
2: I can't remember if I had or not. It wasn't one yeah. that I, I knew well from my childhood, but I may have seen it like yeah, once. I just knew of it. Because I...
0: I had not seen it until I watched it for this episode that we're doing right now. Oh, wow. Um, and the thing that struck me was that everything was just very, very generic. Mm-hmm. Like,. There was there was no specificity to anything. Like none of the characters had any specific motivations or character traits or backstories. It was just like this is the aspiring hero. His trait is he's the aspiring hero. Um, This is the magic man who is magic and keeps a pig. Um,
2: This magical. They kind of were checking off like cliche check marks in the fantasy genre yeah yeah
0: yeah. and like we don't learn like there's mention of a war but we don't know what that is like we don't know why the horned king is so bad um and we don't know what this army is uh we don't we don't know any of this they're just there just is generic evil and they are generically thrown on a generic quest and there's like a generic gilbert
2: godfrey fairy (laughs) along the way
1: you can thank so many people for that. Yeah. <laughs> and then as
2: we've been uh, kind of talking about, we have the, the side character of Gurgi, who starts off as kind of this selfish uh, scavenger character who's just looking for anything to eat, just like doing whatever he can to, to get by. And then he learns uh, to fall in love with these characters and ends up sacrificing himself for them, uh, which like we've been saying, that's kind of the, the biggest, you know, character connection that we have the biggest arc that there is although I felt like it kind of undercut itself because uh, his his lines right before his sacrifice are like uh, you have lots of friends Gergi has no friends and then he and yeah. then he sacrifices himself which for me almost bordered between like switching from sacrifice to just straight up suicide
0: <laughs> yeah um, right because he's supposed but, to be sacrificing himself to save the friends that he just got in time to sacrifice himself to save um, yeah
2: But it felt more like he was just he was just sad for his pathetic life. Um, But it's it's still the most compelling uh, character development that we have in the whole movie. Oh,
0: yeah, for sure. For 100 percent. That's the closest I get to feeling in the movie.
1: Yeah, And I think that half of that kind of comes from I can't prove this, but um, I I have a feeling that in the process of when they were making this, they were still. Still trying to kind of compete with uh, Ralph Bakshi, who's another animator. He did a Lord of the Rings film in the seven, in the late seventies. I still feel like they were trying to compete with that because that was considered a huge epic at the time. Mm, that makes sense.
2: I mean, this film gets pretty dark. Like the the Horned King, all of his scenes are are you know pretty intense, uh, especially for a film and a studio that has uh, typically aimed towards young audiences, even on the young end of the young audiences spectrum. Um, And that's what got this film uh, to be the first film rated PG uh, in Disney's history. Um, But so, I mean, I I can definitely see that because, you know, we've got all the like hallmarks of an Epic quest. We've got a really dark, bad guy. Literally, we're talking about like demonic forces and stuff like that. Um, so it, it was just kind of interesting coming from you know the studio that brought us
1: Snow White. Well, what's interesting about I'm actually glad you brought that up because this was around the time uh, Disney had this corporate shakeup, and believe it or not, this film was actually a lot darker before it was edited by oh, really? um, Jeffrey Katzenberg. Yeah, I think uh, it's it's kind of an urban legend, but this almost got. Uh, an R rating of how intense it was, because uh, they cut I think 12 minutes of footage. Uh, one was this really amazing scene uh, that I could not find. I, I know it's on YouTube somewhere, but it's of when the Horn King, when he conjures up, you know, his army out of the uh, the black cauldron, um, and that yeah. mist starts coming out and creates, you know, the army of the dead. There's actually a deleted scene where they have a fully um animated <laughs> a fully animated scene of this guy getting his skin rotted off from the mist. That's how intense this oh, movie wow. was. Yeah, and it shows like the you know the muscle, you know coming out like it just it's kind of amazing that that was Disney in the 80s.
2: They still have some of that when the Horn King dies and he yeah, holds on yeah. to the cauldron and But yeah, I mean, that yeah, the scene where the the skeletons are coming back to life and then the scene where the Horn King dies and literally disintegrates in a a end of Raiders of the Lost Ark style fashion um, is really intense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole thing feels a
0: little lazy to me, you know, like it feels like, oh, we got to make a movie, I guess. Yeah, and overall. Like you, know, like you said earlier, checking those boxes. I mean, the animation is still, I mean, aside from the Xerox backgrounds, um, the animation is still pretty good, and there's a lot of concepts in there that are both pretty cool visually and executed pretty cool. I think the hags are pretty fun uh, to look at, and they do some cool stuff with the mist. And, of course, all of the purple swirling evil when they approach the land of the Horned King um, and the part where they get sucked down into the purple whirlpool are both pretty cool yeah. visually um, but outside of that like a lot of it's very um,
2: just a lot not even like bad just not, nothing to judge off of were you guys totally annoyed by the bard like, I was like <laughs> if we just cut him out this <laughs> this adventure would feel much more like real I feel like he he lessens the stakes on
1: everything
2: yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, um, for sure. That's what a bard does as a as
0: a dungeon master myself. <laughs> That's what bards always do.
1: Yeah, it was, it, it, it's just, um... It, it's I feel like some, there's a way to know, do it where he... could have done so much with that, but... Played it safe. Yeah. Maybe they'll remake it. Since, you know. <sighs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's only a matter of time with Disney, right? Live action Black oh,
0: Cauldron, gosh. here we go.
2: No. <laughs> Who's gonna play Gurgi? Alfred Molina. <laughs> Andy Serkis, of course. I, I'm trying to remember, like, all the all the little things, because there were, like, a bunch of little points along the journey that they kind of hit, although it it did feel like they were getting dragged along their adventures sometimes, because they would kind of set up camp, and then they would get captured, and then they would be with the bad oh, guys, yeah. but they didn't really have to find them or anything. Um, or they would just fall into the whirlpool and stuff like that. And that little bit with the, with the fairies, when they do fall into the whirlpool, kind of came out of nowhere, and didn't have that much impact. I mean, I think they found the pig that way, and then they all got captured again. Um, and then the little fairy, the little grumpy fairy comes back at the very end. But I was I was, was kind of lost on the point of the fairy scene.
0: Oh, me too, yeah. completely. I, I, I <laughs> Like, it kind yeah. of ends up serving as a way to get the pig out of the story at a certain point, but yeah, kind of. I have a yeah. feeling
1: that those... Um, those fairies somebody said it and I I'm going to rip them off but I kind of feel like those fairies were just either the producer or the executive kids having a cameo
2: oh I could see that that's maybe that's sad but I could totally see that yeah yeah so anything so Aaron you you weren't really familiar with this one before you threw it in here but you you knew that it had an important point in this part of disney's history so what what were your like main impressions after you watched it
1: oh man see the thing is i like with you i swear i've seen this before but i i guess it was just that forgettable to me when i was yeah. younger it just it didn't you know hit the same points but from the animaniac that i am now uh watching this or re-watching this with the perspectives that I had you know knowing what I could see why it's considered a cult classic but there's still a lot of um, a lot of storytelling issues that this thing suffers from and I this is one of the films I honestly would not be mad if they remade because I feel like you could do a lot more with this but yeah just from the overall but you know they will (sighs) they will yeah.
2: Black Cauldron, Does Disney animate anymore? <laughs> uh, oh gosh. Uh, well, they're gonna animate the uh, next
0: Frozen, uh, and the next Frozen after that, and the next Frozen after that, and the next Frozen after that. not the
2: one after that. And but the next Frozen after Disney that.
1: Again? That's my favorite. But
2: I will say, I was I was surprised um, yeah. because I was going into this just knowing that it was a total flop and it lost a bunch of money and all this kind of stuff, but it still had those really like. Shocking parts that I wasn't expecting And um, I just kept drawing parallels to stuff like You know Lord of the Rings and some of the Really classic adventure tales Even if this doesn't kind of transcend Those in any way um, I was kind of surprised by um, How interested I was in watching through it Um, Even if it's You know it's not like a, a groundbreaking Disney film on any level Yeah definitely Oh yeah
0: yeah, definitely not groundbreaking. I would call this the nadir, I believe I'm using that term right, of Disney's fortunes, like oh, their lowest so depth. Like they are, they, they are scraping rock bottom. I mean, for them it's a minor miracle that they survive. And in fact, it basically takes like outside help for them to turn around with Who Framed Roger Rabbit because that is technically right, exactly. a Disney Ooh. film, but really it's like a Zemeckis-Spielberg uh, creation more than it is right. a um, – a Disney thing, and of course Zemeckis and Spielberg, I believe Zemeckis is involved in DreamWorks, both go on to create Dreamwork, DreamWorks, which is a rival corporation, and we can thank for all the Shrek memes out there.
1: Oh,
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think... I, yeah, before we transition, I just think it's kind of ironic that the Black Cauldron is literally named after this device, which is uh, a resurrecting device, and it basically killed Disney, and then Disney came back to life.
0: Ironically enough, harkening back to the history, Katzenberg is also one of the fa- founders of uh, DreamWorks, oh, yeah. along with Steven Spielberg and David Geffen. So another oh, wow. another person with a history with uh, Disney going off to do DreamWorks right around the time when, uh, the, the, uh, I believe DreamWorks started in like the nineties. Yeah. So.
2: I think John Lasseter left around the same time too and went and started Pixar. So there, I mean <laughs> this point <laughs> in Disney's history where it's like collapsing, all the debris that's flying off of Disney is starting these like huge competitors, uh, and future collaborators. Uh, so, you know, as, kind of tragic as it almost is, it's also completely necessary and there was there's a great series of video essays that um, we've been posting on the socials lately that I'll link to in the blog post um, that kind of talk about that how uh, you know Disney was on this downward spiral but only through that could, Disney's animation and all the animation that now surrounds Disney kind of have come to life in the way that we see it now and all of the uh, uh, kind of innovation that has been done since then. It it was almost like Disney had to hit this low point in order for that to happen. And one of the things that kind of kicked off that innovation was Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So there's my transition.
3: Uh, Jason, set us up for that one. Who Framed Roger Rabbit from 1988. In an alternate version of 1947 LA, cartoons, or simply Toons, are very, very real. Animated characters from all over the collective creative properties of the 20th century live in a neighborhood of Los Angeles known as Toontown. Many of the Toons are stars in Hollywood, shooting their cartoon comedy acts for the amusement of many. Eddie Valiant is not a Toon. But he and his brother used to work as private detectives for many a tune until the tragic day his brother was killed by a tune dropping a piano on him. Now Eddie is a drunk and a bum, barely skating by on the good graces of his girlfriend, Dolores. He's reluctant to take on the case offered to him by Maroon cartoon studio head R.K. Maroon, but he needs the money, and so he collects photographic evidence that Jessica Rabbit, Hollywood sex bomb and wife of famed cartoon performer Roger Rabbit, has been playing patty cake, literally just patty cake, with the owner of the Acme Corporation in Toontown, Marvin Acme. Roger is devastated, until the next morning when he is being chased by Judge Doom and his gang of Toon weasels for the suspected murder of Marvin Acme. Roger, familiar with Eddie's past as a Toon helper, turns to him for help, dragging him into the case against his will. Without spoiling the end, it's suffice to say that Toon noir hilarity ensues. Okay, Alex, you had not seen Who Framed Roger Rabbit before uh,
2: prepping for this. No,
0: no, I hadn't. I'd never seen it. it had been on my okay. list forever, but I hadn't
2: seen it. Um, Pretty appropriate since we just did neo noir films, because this is solidly in that category, even though it's it's kind of a spoof on the like whole It's like a twist genre. on neo
0: noir. Yeah, yeah. It's not. I um, wouldn't. I wouldn't call it straight neo noir, but it is like. A, it's almost like yeah. a neo noir parody. You know.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well. Also. I mean it does hit like all of the neo-noir beats. It just throws cartoons into it with, yeah. So it's, it's a really interesting, uh, kind of story construction, but Aaron, tell us a little bit about, um, what it does for animation at this time period.
1: So this is at the point where, okay. So this is like super late eighties. So, this is at the point where I think Disney was doing, like Oliver and Company, you know, they lost a lot of money from Black Cauldron. They don't know what they're doing. They're trying to hire different animators. And animation as a whole, there's, you know, a lot of cheap animation on television. You know, it's all, you know, consumer-based. And all of this money is being pulled into this essentially a secret project with Disney that Steven Spielberg has the rights to. And he basically says, I want to use the animation of Disney from the 30s. I want to use the humor and characters from a Tex Avery cartoon in like the 40s and the Warner Brothers um, humor and cartoons from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And everyone collectively says are you nuts because nobody cares about animation in manner anymore and lo and behold they were so wrong
0: yeah no I mean the fact that I mean I think that was the biggest thing I had to like stop watching the movie halfway through and go look it up but like the monumental effort that Spielberg put into convincing everybody to let like all of these different characters appear alongside together is ridiculous And the fact that, like, it was just this perfect point in time where all of these characters had kind of, like, lost their cultural and financial capital... Because animation had gone into this dark ages thanks to, like, not just Black Cauldron, but a string of movies across the whole industry, like Black Cauldron, that companies were willing to let them appear together. Whereas, like, now, that would never, ever, 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 ever happen again. Like, there's no way Warner Brothers would let their property appear alongside Disney property without, like, trying to gouge the other one. Um it had to be at the in the Dark Ages that that happened.
2: Maybe yeah. the most ambitious crossover movie of all time? Probably. I mean. <laughs> like, really, though. Like, yeah, I mean, maybe. it's not just Disney
0: and Warner Brothers. It's a bunch of other, like, smaller properties, too, that get thrown in here and make cameos. It's crazy that they managed to yeah. pull this off. And I love that they decided to head it with what I believe is a completely original character in Roger Rabbit. Yeah, I was
2: about to say that. I was about to say that because, yeah, all of their main characters are uh, none of the ones that have like already a ton of cultural baggage attached to them. Um, so a, they clear themselves of anyone getting mad for the way that they used them. And, uh, they don't have like these preconceived ideas about these characters going in. These are new characters that feel like those classic characters. Like you can obviously make really clear parallels between like, uh, Roger Rabbit and Bugs Bunny, um, and Jessica and, uh, Betty Boop, like they literally make that connection in the movie, um, you know, stuff like that. So they feel like they fit, but they don't have any of those really specific connotations.
1: Yeah, definitely. definitely. Yeah. Yes.
2: Yeah.
0: And taking a turn from our last movie with Black Cauldron, which was a movie that was so like unspecific and not. I mean, it's not like specificity necessarily means world building, um, but. To go from uh, the unspecific genre- genericness of Black cauldron to a world that's so like well built, And Who Framed Roger Rabbit is quite the turn because they really do do a a good job of putting together like what this fictional uh, place of Hollywood is with these studios and the tunes working for them and the Acme Corporation um, and like all these tunes living alongside all of the humans. And you get the sense that it causes problems and how people have tend to have different views on this. And you get all of that information about the world without having it shoved down your throat, which is really
1: nice. Right. That is definitely thanks to um, they, that. I would definitely give that to Zemeckis because he was very adamant on using um, screenwriters almost constantly every day. He had, like, I think a team of like 10 different writers and the animator uh, Richard Williams, who is probably in the top tier, top 10 animating um, legends. Uh, they all always sat together and they made sure the plot moved um, steadily and everything worked because a lot of people don't realize that this is also based off of a novel I think by I think his name was Gary Wolf uh, yeah really? it's it's different it's it's different let's just say the movie feels a lot more uh, if I, I put it like this if anybody um, has read or knows of Watchmen uh, the book is a lot like that in terms of it's not as humorous. Yeah. Oh, wow. And that's way. Yeah. Darker. And the characters Watchmen's are, like
0: the other end of the spectrum yes. from who framed yeah, Roger I think Rabbit.
1: I Rabbit is one of the most <laughs> unlikable characters in that book. And the film is just uh, uh, you can thank Amblin Entertainment for that. They definitely uh, had to rework this and turn it into something that everyone would enjoy. And I think this is about the time when, you know, the, the really, uh, the really big shakeups with executives and, you know, heads, because uh, I think Roy Disney himself, you know, he was very happy with this product, but it also came with a price because all Disney had was the marketing rights to this. Boy, they were hot because uh, I, they, I think there were like three other shorts of Roger Rabbit made. And they were incredibly well animated. But, you know, going back to what, you know, you guys said earlier, there's no way this can happen now. Um, because everyone's, it's kind of a rat race at this point. And, you know, just with the storytelling alone, I i don't know too many movies that, that can seamlessly pull off just a zany plot like this. Uh, because it just, in the book, uh, I think it was. Uh, it was called Who Censored Roger Rabbit. Um, the characters that were toons, uh, it was played more like a comic book. And so now with this, you know, with using the medium of film, it definitely played off better because we got to see characters we grew up with. You know, just I think this is one of the first movies I saw as a child. Yeah. So, you know, just seeing all these characters together and playing off each other so well. And, you know, in its sense, realistic enough it, it just—it's a dream come true for any animaniac like myself. I love that word, <laughs> and I just—I—I yeah. <laughs> I actually, actually, I will say this is the film that got me into animation just because of the 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 incredible um, hard work that the animators and puppeteers. Because you know everything uh, from Eddie's coat moving—that's just that's all puppetry and. Uh, they they worked their butts off. They really did, and just, oh um, yeah,
2: the the technique to
0: make uh, this happen is crazy.
1: Yeah,
2: <laughs> it still looks yeah. really good, um, and and like seamless in the way that all the interactions and stuff happen. Uh, but like you were saying about about how all of this kind of works, I feel like part of it, and we've thought we talked about this a lot on the podcast, but it's about the actors believing in the world, like. The reason that it feels real is because all, it's played like it's real. It's not played with a wink and a nod. It's literally Bob Hoskins plays this like he's the hard boiled detective. He just has to deal with cartoon characters. Like that's yeah. just the world that he knows. It doesn't feel like it's it's a disconnect or anything. Um, and, uh, and and the other thing you said, uh, uh, Aaron, as far as like this being one of the first animated films that you saw, like this is. This is one of those things that, like, in the 80s, kids' movies were very different from uh, kids' movies nowadays because I I actually rented this from the library, and I had to go to the kids' section of the library to pick up this movie, and I was like, there's a lot of stuff in this movie that I don't know that you can pull off anymore, like kids handing the guy a cigarette or all the drinking. There is a literal on-screen murder with a gun uh, that happens, and there's I mean it's a really dark kind of plot overall even though there's all this zaniness happening around it Um, but that's that's one of the things that I always find so interesting is that like here kids go watch Who Framed Roger Rabbit Uh, have fun yeah
0: no I feel like there still are I feel like the best kids animation or just the best animation in general still deals with dark themes um, even today But, but you do have a point and I think Aaron you were you were getting at something that I think maybe wasn't as true during the disney golden era but was definitely true moving forward for the disney renaissance and like the future of animation in terms of like pixar in that who framed roger rabbit definitely has like this dual appeal both for kids and adults like it is a kids movie in in theory but also like it's perfectly entertaining to adults as well um it's got all of the characters that they grew up with it's got a mix of both like kids' humor and adult humor in it, Um, and that's not a mix that you see in, like, Black Cauldron and, like, nearly any, basically any uh, animated movie going back. Like, the Golden Era Disney movies didn't function like that. But the ones moving forward do. Um, All of the Renaissance ones definitely have a mix of humor like that, and definitely all the Pixar films have a mix of humor like that. Um, So it kind of serves as, like, this touchstone where, like, you you might... signal it as like the herald of the revival of animation, um, and both like being like commercially viable and like setting the tone for how the humor is going to work moving forward.
1: Yeah, it's, it was, it's definitely an amazing uh, process that I think it kicked off. Uh, I think this was the real, um, beginning of the, um, animation Renaissance, just not the Disney Renaissance, because uh, if it wasn't for this, um, there, you wouldn't have half of the uh, animated products that kind of shape, you know, every single subgenre within animation. Uh, you wouldn't have Cartoon Network. You wouldn't have Nickelodeon. Uh, you wouldn't have um, Spielberg dipping his toe in animation with Tiny Toons and. Um, Freakazoid, you know, all these different things, and of course, you know, Batman, the animated series, got to give a shout out to that. And it just, it's a lot of, it's a lot of, um, that. that's proof of a lot of different creatives um, coming together and pulling off an amazing feat, uh, just showing what the medium can really do, and it's just an amazing film, and oh my gosh, I am totally going to watch this later. <laughs> Um, yeah,
2: I I actually didn't realize that Robert Zemeckis directed this, um, yeah. and I I never thought of Robert Zemeckis as much of like an animation director. I think of him more as like um, you know Back to the Future and that kind of stuff. But you know, we talked about A Christmas Carol on the podcast. We talked about, or we kind of mentioned Polar Express. I think in in that episode, and uh, you know this. Kind of just goes to show how a lot of the, uh, you know, directors like Robert Zemeckis, like, are willing to take chances on stuff like this. And when you get a really good creative head behind it who believes in it and doesn't think that, oh, animation is a a kid's medium or yeah. whatever, like, you can actually get some really good stuff out of it. Uh, and Robert Zemeckis obviously goes on to kind of keep pushing animation into um, – kind of what we're what we're seeing nowadays which is more and more photorealistic animation which is where Disney's going too so (laughs) still a great director i I was watching some of the behind the scenes on this uh on this film and it was interesting because i was wondering if they just like literally eyeballed all of the animation and stuff but they actually had like foam models of all of the characters uh with crew members kind of wagging them around uh in the scene and stuff like that. And then they would paint over them, uh, in the editing process. And I thought that was really interesting. And for the, uh, for the car, I forget the car's name, but they, he literally, Bob Hoskins was sitting in this little go kart that had no walls or anything. And oh, there's, yeah, he's not yeah. even driving it, he's holding a steering wheel, but there's a guy sitting behind him in all black who's actually driving it uh, around the street. And Bob Hoskins <laughs> is just kind of like sitting there reacting to nothing next to him. He's not driving, but he's pretending like he's driving. It's just, it looks so ridiculous, but the way that they're able to add in all of those effects, like it really works.
1: Yeah. I think all animators, anybody who's interested in animation, needs to check this out if they haven't. Just because for anybody who's just interested in film, period. Because this is this is absolutely one of the top ten films, um, just of all because of all time. This is they really hit the nail on the head with this in terms of making the story, making likable characters too. Because I don't think. Two, you know not many Noir films have likable characters in them and they they definitely pulled it off right they definitely pulled this one off
2: yeah and Roger Rabbit like almost crosses the line into being just really annoying but you still right. kind of love him throughout the whole thing okay cool so with that let's uh let's get into the Disney Renaissance proper with the Little mermaid
3: The Little mermaid from 1989. Under the sea is Atlantica, the kingdom of the Myrrh people, led by King Triton, assisted by his advisor and court composer, the Crab Sebastian. Ariel, the youngest of the king's many daughters, is a bit of a troublemaker. Unlike her father, she is fascinated by the culture of the land-loving humans and constantly searching out artifacts from shipwrecks on the ocean floor, along with her animal sidekick, the fish named Flounder, and taking her finds to her human culture consultant, the seagull Scuttle. Things start getting complicated when Ariel rescues the land-loving Prince, Eric, from a shipwreck in a storm, leaving a lasting impression in his memory of her voice. But when Triton discovers that she saved a human, he wrecks her secret stash of artifacts. Sneaking in to play on the tensions between father and daughter is the sea witch Ursula, who offers Ariel a loaded deal, her voice, for a chance at love on land with Eric. Desperate and feeling like a poor, unfortunate soul, Ariel takes the deal. But can she figure out how to be part of Eric's world? Will Eric kiss the girl? And will the kingdom of Atlantica survive under the sea? All right,
2: Aaron. So this film, the Disney Renaissance begins. So why don't you tell us yes. uh, your thoughts on the film in general and then also kind of what that does for Disney going forward?
1: Oh, man. So I like the film. Um just with with everything we have now in terms of like animated films um, it's it's nothing to write home about um it's a very standard story you know it's a standard fairy tale you know animated fairy tale uh it's got fun music fun characters but at the time this was this actually really was groundbreaking because they got animators uh to be the screenwriters um they have uh, a lot of they have alan mancon doing the music but this was also brilliant. the point yeah this purely brilliant and this is also the point where i think people start to realize post roger rabbit that disney actually really was a powerhouse um again and just for adam anim- this this caused a ripple effect of like you know, marketing at its finest. Um, You got Howard Ashman, the late, great Howard Ashman. Um, You know, he was, honestly, I think he was the reason why Disney was so successful up until his death um, and even after. And I think a lot of people in the industry, along with Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was also part of Disney, they realized that there was money um, in the classical way of storytelling. I think they used to say, uh, waking, sleeping beauty. It's a great documentary about that same title, but that's what they used to call it. And it just, everyone post 89 and on have basically tried to recapture the magic that, you know, this film created.
2: Yeah. And you're right. It, it kind of brings back a, uh, almost like a, a Disney formula. Um, in the way that they started creating films throughout the, the 90s, um, in that you have a character who wants something, they want a different kind of life, uh, and then they find like really shady kind of means of attaining that. They do that, and then all of a sudden there's consequences that they have to deal with uh, coming out of that. Um, <clears throat> and then, of course... Adding in that uh, musical element and getting these great musical composers to do that is just some—it's a way to heighten the uh, kind of emotional interest and emotional stakes in all of that. Even if, kind of like when you take The Little Mermaid on its face, it's is not that big of a deal. But when you have Ariel like singing like how much she wants this, um, then you can really feel it uh, a lot more. But yeah, ultimately like. They have these things that they will come back to over and over again. Famously, um, Disney's "I Want" song, where in pretty much all of the films of the Disney Renaissance, there is that song of like what the character wants, and that has kind of just become a a story trope in general. And it's always been there. Um, you know, you even think of like Star Wars, and Luke Skywalker basically mm-hmm. has his his "I Want." He wants to get off of his planet and uh, did you just pitch live a, a more Wars exciting musical? life? <laughs> oh no. I'm sure it's it's out there somewhere. Um actually here's the idea: Star Wars rock opera. Whoa. Guys. Whoa. Guys. Whoa. <laughs> um, but yeah, these are like really standard things, and Disney just has a way of putting really um interesting and flamboyant characters into uh what turn out to be pretty standard roles throughout the films. Um, and drawing from some really classic stories uh, that have already stood the test of time. And that turns into a formula for success, um, which is really important, especially at this point, because as we talked about, there was that change in um, management and executives at Disney. And suddenly, the I mean, it always has been to some ex- extent, but suddenly the focus of Disney was really making money and making profit, especially after Black Cauldron did so bad and almost sunk them. And so once they realized, like, we can keep doing this and people will come in droves to see it, they just stuck with it for, you know, at least 10 years. And now with some of the modern films, they're kind of doing different things, which is uh, remaking their old things. But, you know, Mm. for throughout the 90s, this kind of worked for them. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's become, I mean, the Disney
0: musicals of the 90s are all very unique in the worlds they set up, but in terms of like their structure, kind of formulaic. And I don't think that's a bad thing. It's just that Disney found something that works and decided to stick with it, this musical structure. Yeah. And now, obviously, all of the best Disney animated movies tend to be musicals. I mean, even their classic ones have music in them. Um,
2: yeah. Just starting but, with Snow White, like from the very beginning.
0: Yeah. Yeah, but all of these, but but everything moving forward that was super successful. There was a short period in like the early two thousands where like they didn't sing, and then Tangled came back, and now with the
1: <laughs> quote,
0: quote Disney Renaissance part um, two, they, uh, they they've gone back to the singing formula, and that seems to be working very very well for them. So good good for them. Um, you also notice with. Uh, with the return of the Disney Renaissance, a certain amount of like wokeness that comes with the changing times, oh uh, for lack of a yeah. better term, in which they try, try to be a little more progressive. Of course, Little Mermaid shoots at that mark and it doesn't hit it for uh, uh, obviously our 2019 yeah. standards, but also that was like 30 years ago now. This Little Mermaid's 30 years old, oh, guys. Man. Revel in. Yeah, jeez. Oh, <laughs>
2: Like, like you're talking about, Ariel... I, I didn't even realize this until I was going back and kind of thinking over the story for this week. And, you know, Ariel doesn't change. She wants to be a human. She wants to be with Eric. And she gets that. Like, she goes through all of this crap. Her yeah, somebody, dad takes somebody the fall for to, her. Somebody tries to Eric, screw her up. And then she... Yeah. Yeah. Basically, she messes up on her, on her contract with Ursula... Her dad ends up taking the fall for it and turning into the little shriveled soul. And then Eric, her love interest, comes in and kills Ursula. So she just, like, you know, she wanted a thing, and everyone kind of, like, <laughs> sacrificed themselves to help her get that thing. So, I mean, but the sang, question is... she sang,
1: guys. She sang.
2: She did sing. But, I mean, the other thing <laughs> is, like, I I guess the point is that if you really want something, do whatever it takes to go for it, but... I don't know. Like thinking back on it, I was like, I don't know if that was actually like a really healthy way to build relationships. Yeah. Well, it's it's actually like I totally
1: agree with that.
2: (laughs) It's my same beef with Brave is that she she never really was brave. She just did a bunch of stupid stuff, and then she got what she wanted, which was to not marry anybody. Kind of the opposite of what Ariel wants.
1: Right. I think that just kind of comes with the times uh, because. You know, I I'm just trying to think off the top of my head. Really, before this film, like any, yeah, any Disney princess, they were. I, this was kind of a step in the right direction. Um, but I think, it, like, I'm really trying to think. I cannot think of one Disney princess that was really action heavy as much as Ariel was uh, before this. I think because I think
2: Aladdin. Does the most action.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. that's that's after this. Yeah, and then, you know, of course, I think Belle and Aladdin were like the steps in the right direction of main character. Oh, what about Mulan, y'all?
3: And Mulan. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. That's
1: further. That's further. But yes, I totally agree. You got Mulan. Of course, Little Mermaid comes before both those movies. Yeah. And, like, I just. Ariel, just. she was She was a princess. She stayed a princess. They tried to rectify that with, uh, I think, an animated series after that, but... Oh, really? Yeah, that, that... Oh, man, I remember watching that when I was very young, and I was not too pleased with... The characters surrounding Ariel are much more interesting. Even Eric. Even Eric. And all he does is just stand there.
2: Yeah, I was actually surprised that the supporting characters were not as annoying as a lot of Disney uh, supporting characters tend to be nowadays, like uh, specifically Olaf and um, whatever the deal with that chicken from Moana was. Um, like, uh, I guess... Requisite f- animal companion? Yeah, but they. <laughs> I feel like they've gotten just dumber and dumber over the years, like even... Uh, uh, scuttle or whatever, here he was kind of dumb, but it was just kind of out of ignorance, not kind of like this willful uh, stupidness. And yeah. like Flounder was, you know, he was fine, he was just kind of her friend. And uh, even Flotsam and Jetsam weren't the bumbling, incompetent uh, sidekicks, they were like legitimate henchmen who were creepy. Uh, and Ursula is really, is a, a really compelling. Uh, bad guy because she's charismatic and creepy at the same time so you like love watching her but you're also disgusted by her
1: yeah i think you can thank howard ashman uh definitely for all of that because uh he and alan making you know they came from a musical theater background you know they wrote a lot of musicals including little shop of horrors right before um they worked at disney so you know everything uh I, howard ashman and alan Macon were kind of the unspoken leaders of disney at this time before howard ashman died um right before beauty and the beast was released and that's kind of where you get this you know level-headedness of all these characters and you know you have these archetypes and they're zany and they're wacky but it's not you know, over the top, as you see in a lot of later animated films. Uh, and that just kind of comes from them trying to, you know, like you guys said earlier, copying the formula over and over. Um, that's just when they had a very keen business sense and they were betting it all on this film, like uh, Roger Rabbit, of course. But, you know, that comes from, you know, a very clear view of what they. You know, needed, and you know. Apparently, before this, uh, I was looking at some different things uh, before we were on here. Um, before this, uh, Howard Ashman, uh, he kind of set everybody down, and he was like, "Hey, guys, nobody is understanding the Broadway formula and the Disney formula. They actually work very well together, and nobody had thought of that up to this point." And now it's come full circle with everybody making Broadway musicals based off Disney projects. So
0: Yeah, Yeah. that that Ashby lecture is actually, like, available online, and it's very interesting. If you're curious about this, I recommend taking a listen.
2: Yeah, I'll find a link to that and post it in the blog post. Um, But, yeah, I mean, it does work. I mean, who of our generation does not um, just, like, know all, like, songs from you know, at least a handful of these films that we can call up, like, at a moment's notice, you know, these these songs and uh, characters and stuff are just iconic, and I think that's one of the other things about the Disney Renaissance. This is kind of getting into overall stuff now, but, like, it's really formative for a huge group of people that are our age, um, and who grew up, you know, obviously, like, in America and stuff, but you know, it it's kind of this really common Uh, cultural background that all of us sort of have just because it was really iconic and really good children's entertainment that we all ended up seeing and uh, it was so popular that we couldn't escape seeing it all over the place and now it's kind of ingrained in our memories so if anyone talks about you know Ursula, or Beauty and the Beast, or uh, Mulan, Pocahontas—like we understand all of these common cultural references—and almost in a way that probably, like the classic fairy tales and stuff like that, served a, in a more oral tradition. Uh, and Disney kind of found a way by taking them and, you know, twisting them obviously into their own little mold and changing them to have happy endings and stuff. Has kind of kept alive that that uh, you know common common core of stories that a lot of people understand without having to have a lot of explanation when you're kind of just drawing from uh from things that everyone knows about hashtag 90s kids oh yeah hashtag 90s kids love me a good my parents
0: yeah and you know what jonathan i've been thinking about it ever since you said it um and i'm thinking that the um that the closest thing that like characters specifically Ariel and then, Oh gosh, I completely forgot her name. Uh, Merida in a uh, brave. Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. Thank you. Uh, the, the closest thing they get to an arc and the Merida definitely does a better job of it than Ariel, um, and little mermaid is, uh, kind of like this reconciling with their family. Like they realize they don't have to fight with their family. um, but that that almost feels like a happenstance of the story that occurs. Like they start to in in, yeah. li- in little, specifically in Little Mermaid, they start to build up this thing where one character is completely untrusting and one character is completely trusting. But they put it all in humans. And if they had made it a little more broader in paranoia, they could have tied it into like Ariel just like blindly trusting Ursula, and had like a nice you know arc about trust and learning to trust each other and a family supporting each other um, but they didn't quite get there but heck they still achieved what they set out to achieve for sure in The Little Mermaid I think Brave is a little better um, in terms of like relatability to uh, mothers and daughters um, it's almost like the anim- I feel like Brave and um, oh what's the one that came out the other year uh, ladybird would make a good oh, yeah. like mother daughter double feature Um In terms of like, you know, learning to not fight with your mom or learning to get along with your mom or recognize that both either your mother or your daughter is like a full fledged person um, who isn't trying to ruin your life. But instead, you can work together as partners to achieve stuff. Um, But you're right. In the end, like looking back, they don't change a whole, whole lot. They just kind of like get along with somebody slightly better than they did at the start of the story.
2: Yeah. After putting a lot of people in danger. (laughs) Yeah, typically a lot of people.
0: Yeah, a lot of a lot of the uh, princes and princesses of the um, of the Disney Disney Renaissance era are really reckless. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think maybe the most socially responsible is um, is like Mulan. Because she she like all of the risks she puts on herself and she's just trying to, like, keep her dad from dying and keep her country from falling to invaders. Um, and yeah. if she if she gets caught, like the worst thing that happens is that she fa- she she dies like not not anybody else
2: is going to die. Um, and Belle Belle kind of does the same thing. True, she yeah. she gives herself oh,
1: up yeah. for her dad. Yeah,
2: that's very true. So um, also continuing the proud <laughs> Disney tradition of dead
0: parents.
1: Oh, oh yeah. Right.
2: Right. <laughs> Oh <laughs> yeah, Ariel's mom is never even mentioned in this movie. <laughs> she is mentioned in the Little Mermaid two. Oh,
1: oh yeah! Gosh. Oh yeah. I, I don't know
2: anything about the Little Mermaid two except that she has a daughter. I guess.
1: Oh don't don't start with Disney sequels. I will oh, tell <laughs> you,
2: after reading the uh, Hans Christian Andersen tale this week, <laughs> uh, it's it's not as dark as as grim. Um, I will say. But it is not. It does not have a happy ending. Uh, it does not. I guess depending on how you read it, it's kind of. It gets kind of complicated at the end. But
0: anyway, also, I'm also like where you lie on like the morality scale. Like I mean, anything can be a happy ending if you're just like completely evil. <laughs> That's true. Also, uh, That's Aaron, true. I have a question for you. Yes. What do you? Okay, so it's it's pretty well known that uh, nearly everything Disney does. Um, especially all their successes are based on something. They're nearly all adaptations of a sort, whether it's a a common fairy tale um, or story or a Hans Christian Andersen um, uh, story. I feel like if that guy were alive right now, he'd be so rich. Um, He'd be banking. So rich. Disney owes so much to like that one man. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like they owe more to Hans <laughs> Christian Andersen than they do to Walt Disney, who That's is so a questionable true. character in and of himself. Um, oh, yeah. But, but how do you what What do you think about them all being adaptations? Do you think Disney would or should ever attempt like a truly OG story?
1: I 100% do, um, just because, uh, like you were saying, uh, they're. Almost all adaptations. I'm trying to think off the top of my head ones that were released in films that weren't. Uh, so were they like, have they, they like have based more off
2: original stories in their live action uh, repertoire yeah, yeah, than their true. animated yeah. repertoire. Is that
1: correct? Yeah. yeah. Or, just, or in, like
0: or like they're pulled from history directly. Like uh, there's there's a bunch of common legends uh, and historical stories about um, uh, women becoming warriors and like full on yeah. warlords in China um let's see what else uh hercules is a myth uh yeah. princess and a frog is a like folklore fairy tale um Fro- frozen is uh hans christian princess and the frog i think
2: is actually grim there you yeah. go there you go yeah. there's there's a lot of there's
0: a lot of there's two rudyard kipling ones tarzan and uh um, uh, I don't think Jungle Tarzan
2: book. is Kipling, but Jungle Book definitely is. Jungle Book. What's Tarzan though? Tarzan's definitely a book, right? It's it's a book, but I don't think it's Kipling. Or, or, oh, okay.
1: okay. Oh, Edgar Rice Burroughs. Yeah, that's the guy.
2: Yeah, yeah. there you go.
1: It, they. I. I really hope someday uh, some CEO comes in and says, "Hey, guys, if we're gonna make another anime movie, let's make it completely original—the uh, story, the content, the characters—because." Uh, if you look at let's just pull from roger rabbit uh if you take away you know most of the pre-existing characters that we know it's you know you still have roger rabbit you know baby um or 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 whatever his name is jessica rabbit judge doom and you know a lot of other characters and i would love an animated epic just with some original characters but you know we, we we uh it all consumer based people I,
0: so here's here's what I th- here's what I think it is and we've talked about this on the for- before in the podcast Jonathan um, there is only so many so and and like we cover like an overwhelming number of things you can mm-hmm. focus on in a movie on the show Like we've, we've done a bunch of episodes and it feels like every episode we're like, this is the most important thing, but it's not, (laughs) uh, there's like a million things you can focus on in a, in a movie. And you, you, you really want to champion like one, two or three things and then everything else just needs to be good, not great. Like if three things are good or, or are great, but the rest is like, okay to good, you're set. And I feel like as long as the things you
2: are excelling at are the focus of the film, because if you're excelling at the background things, it's going to feel off.
0: Exactly, exactly. And what what Disney excels at is uh, their animation, um, their plot structure and their music. And those are the things at the forefront of their movies. And they do a really good job of it. Um, the story, um, I mean, it's okay. It's good. It's, but it's not the focus of a Disney movie. Right. And because it's not the focus of it, they, to, to, de- the cost to develop a completely original story is probably way greater than pulling on some public domain story that they can make into a movie. Um, so doing it this way is, is a completely functional and completely acceptable way to do it. And it's kind of just become their oh, format. Yeah. Yeah, like it's definitely. what works for them. And it's gonna take something big, probably another dark age, to really shake them out of that.
2: I think I think the the biggest counterpoint to that is uh the invention of Pixar. Because Pixar yeah, comes along and it is entirely uh its its big things are the story and the animation. Uh mm-hmm. and but it Pixar doesn't, doesn't do you,
0: Pixar yeah, it doesn't have to worry
2: about music. One doesn't um, do music,
0: yeah. and two, everything that Disney does, ha, does and has done for like the past thirty years has been so integrated with not just like their movies, but like every other brand that they they own and control in terms right, of their like theme parks, right. merchandise, all of it. So Marketing. everything they roll out, and essentially they're just on princesses now. Like they don't do anything but princesses. Um, but anything they roll out, Tangled, Princess and the Frog um frozen has to integrate into that structure too so there's a lot of like um so there i would i would even put like merchandising as like soulless as that answer is into the <laughs> top tiers of of like the things that a disney movie has focused on for the past 30 years
1: you can think that yeah, whereas but that's like why pixar I think that-
0: pixar doesn't do that quite as heavily you know like <laughs> There isn't the like. There might be Pixar things in a Disney theme park, but they're there because of Disney, and they're integrated pretty much after the fact, compared to like in a, a, like, a Frozen theme park ride or something like that.
2: Right, but that's why I think it's so interesting that Pixar is, um, you know, ended up partnering with Disney, and they are, uh, you know, <laughs> distinct but still yeah. kind of. Uh, one thing because pixar is kind of that counterbalance to disney's kind of um uh story lacking films that are formulaic pixar does really well at creating original content um that also is very well animated um but is not kind of like trying to make sure that it's uh obviously they have to be profitable that's kind of like underlying any time we're talking about movie but you know they're not so concerned with making sure that this movie can make toys and right. fits into a princess universe and all that kind of stuff um so i i think that pixar is kind of the uh the animation world's response to disney's uh lack of of story um depth if you will
1: yeah definitely it it could have been DreamWorks, but Pixar absolutely is the answer to that. But then
2: they made Trek 4?
1: Trek 5.
2: Okay, so let's let's officially move into our overall notes, even though we've kind of already been talking about overall, um, and talk about kind of Disney's place in animation as a whole, um, especially after this kind of revival Um and then also like the legacy that Disney's Renaissance has on the current state of animation. So Aaron, why don't you kind of, uh, kick it off for us? Oh
1: boy. <laughs> it's legacy. Um, post Renaissance, I, I would say post uh, Roger Rabbit era. It left a huge impact on a lot of viewers, a lot of, um, creatives, a lot of people who are in the industry right now uh, doing animation, um, you know, everybody is still trying to emulate what uh, the success they pulled in uh, the 90s and during the Renaissance and, you know, even outside of it, you know, like I mentioned, you have DreamWorks that tried to compete and, you know, has its own thing. Um, However, (laughs) I will say uh, where it's at now, really, I would say by the mid-90s, at the point uh, Toy Story was in development with Pixar, there was a bit of a monopoly, a mouse-opoly, if you will. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was kind of created. You know, there's a new stigma now in animation that, you know, I think, I think it's... Um, gotten out of it but for a very long time it was like all animation is Disney no matter what every single, I think even Don bluth at some point uh, who was a huge competitor to Disney in the 80s he his uh, his company they even tried to emulate you know the Disney formula of the 90s and it was it's it's different um, because it won or it didn't win but it was very close um disney of course they were very close to winning or at least even with a nomination of best picture uh at the oscars with beauty and the beast and it's like that's where animation can go but you know where it's at um at the moment you know in time you know and even in the 90s there was like this you know this 90s esque attitude where we have to, you know, push it to you know a certain demographic of kids. We got to be totally radical. You know, this is the time when The Simpsons was big. You know, everyone was kind of trying to find their niche, their own little niche. But um, Disney had its own thing, and it it kind of ballooned into something I don't think anybody even Walt expected it to at this point, and. The legacy would be just with the Disney Renaissance alone, uh something that I don't think you can recapture. Um, even with, you know, the Frozens and things like that, you can't recapture what they did. But what has happened now, it is almost definitely a mousophily. Controversial take. Boom.
2: Uh yeah, especially with all um even the the live action properties that Disney has been buying up and stuff, yeah. like they're not they're not stopping at animation.
1: It just, it's
2: yeah no they've become they've become full on like acquisitions Inc. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Alex, you put an interesting question in here um, as far as like and and we brought this up at the top of the podcast, but let's talk about whether or not we think Disney or any any animation will, whether, uh, like, specifically at the Academy Awards, whether animation will ever be considered for the best picture proper, or if it will always be, uh, if you will, segregated to best animated feature? Mm.
1: Uh,
0: I don't think it's ever going to make it out of that category. Um, As long as, especially as long as um, Disney is in control of all, of most, Disney slash Pixar, I'm lumping them together because I feel like now they've kind of teamed up. I mean, they've literally teamed up um, in a way to make movies that are just conceived and marketed as being for kids, even though we... And we talked before about Pixar not necessarily being just for kids, and it's got a lot of appeal for adults too, and that's all true. But in, in, in the mainstream uh, zeitgeist of the culture in America... They are, they are marketed to and perceived as kids' movies, everything Disney and um, uh, Pixar puts out as far as animation. And as long as that's the case, as long as they're in control of the major uh, animated movies that come out in America, and they certainly are, there's not really a big other competitor besides those two, um, which again, aren't really competitors. Like They both exist, but they exist under the same roof. Um, then then uh, there's, there's just no way they're, they're always going to be relegate animated movies are always going to be relegated to the animated feature category um, now should that change one day and there be multiple competitors and multiple good competitors making quality animation that's aimed both at kids and adults um and marketed both to adults and kids i think it could change but for now, for the foreseeable future, I don't
2: think it will. Aaron, what's your take?
1: Yeah, no, I, I am definitely with Alex on that one. I don't think it's going to change anytime soon just because um, it's it's still, from the industry alone, you know, animation is seen as um, one extreme or the other. Uh, there's no in-between anymore. Um It's so you're saying it's either frozen or sausage party. (laughs) There you go. See, I'm I'm not trying to go. Yeah, I'm not trying to go there. But you hit the nail on the head with that one. Um, It's you know when you have like um, something like Roger Rabbit. You know, I'm going to keep pulling from that, or or not even that. I would say like Roger Rabbit. Keep pulling that Roger Rabbit um, out of your hat. Just to, oh yeah, oh yeah. There you go. But, uh, but I'll use that one and um, Batman the Animated Series. Uh, great, great, great show. Not my favorite superhero. Uh, those two are perfect examples of something that both kids and adults enjoy uh, because it has impactful characters, great music, uh, the scores. You know, everything feels like it's on the universe. And the storytelling, it treats it within the universe and to the audience very mature. Um, and I think at that point, um, post, um, post Beauty and the Beast, um, when they just got nominated for Best Picture and they lost to Science of the Lambs, I think that's when everybody was kind of like, well, okay, let's see what, what other animation projects do next. And... After that, you know, you got, you know, the late, great Robert Williams doing his thing. But everyone tried to do Aladdin or Beauty and the Beast or, you know, um, you know, different projects like that from different companies. And like, you know, I stated before, it just kind of created this, you know, mess of cheap animation uh, that a lot of people would think is Disney. And because of that, it led to, you know the best animated picture. Yeah, category and just like comic books, we aren't going to get out of that anytime soon.
2: See, I I wonder I I think that this is not going to be a perpetual thing. I think I don't know how long it will take, but I do think that the the best yeah. animated picture will kind of disintegrate in on itself, especially the more like as Disney puts out there Lion Kings which are uh, kind of thread the line between animation and live action and it's stuff animated. like that. I feel like, oh, yeah. yeah, but I
1: <laughs> I think that um,
2: the, the distinction between best picture and best animated picture is going to um, at some point be looked back on like the distinction between uh, black and white films and color films back when black and white right. was for drama and color was for comedy. Um, and, you know, at some point, the more that, The more animation is out there, the more that we are integrating animation with live action, like that distinction between animated film and live action film is just going to become so arbitrary that we're not going to need those distinctions. I don't know how long that's going to take, but I I definitely think that there will be a best best picture uh, winner that will be um, completely or nearly completely animated um, at some point.
0: Uh, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that, and I'll throw out some points as to why. Um, First is uh, going off of your comparison to black and white, the black and white category at the Oscars, I I see what you're saying, but that kind of tracked along the development of color technology and the the proliferation of color technology into the industry Whereas animation has been a thing for nearly as long as cinema has been a thing, like going back into the twenties, there's been animated movies. So, like, it but they
2: they haven't they haven't competed really in the same arena as live action in the way that they do nowadays. I feel like yeah. I feel like that the, the distinction in those in those two is becoming thinner and thinner.
0: It's possible.
2: It's possible,
0: but also, I don't I don't think that, like... Like, what do you mean that they're going to integrate, that they're going to become indistinct? Do you think... Do you mean, like, uh, Roger Rabbits? Do you think we're just going to get a lot of Roger Rabbits of animated and live-action
2: crossovers? <laughs> or? I think that we're already there. I mean, if you think about any superhero movie, uh, Jurassic Park, mm-hmm. anything, that's all essentially Roger Rabbit because it's characters interacting with animated creatures and characters and stuff like that that are as abundant as the characters in Roger Rabbit they're just not pointed out as such it's not poking fun at that in a meta way like Roger Rabbit does I feel like maybe but I
0: feel like there's even a distinction between that kind of animate quote unquote animation or CGI really and animation, animation. Because I feel like animation mm. crept up to that point where it could be photorealistic and then stepped back and said, no, we like the style where it looks animated. And that's that's going to be the animated film moving forward. Like, that seems to be what Pixar likes to do, is to have their, their characters look a little more animated. And that seems like what Disney likes as well. Like, they don't make Which their characters fine. photorealistic. But I feel like that's not going to blur together with the quote unquote animated movie that has CGI characters mixed into it. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, like, maybe this like, is a better way to put it. I feel it like the animated
0: category is going to be reserved for movies that don't try to make photorealistic characters.
2: Okay, yes. Yeah. And that's fine. Yeah. But maybe okay, maybe this is a better way to, to put my, my thought process is that currently the the uh, best animated feature is films that are geared towards children and I think that that's the distinction that's going to start to disintegrate like what Aaron was saying is that right now it's either like a definitively like adult like hard R kind of animated film to be shocking and ironic or it's like very young children oriented and I think that as the stories that are being told through fully animated films starts to broaden and people like uh, Brad Bird are able to take their stories that they don't want to be Uh, secluded to a child audience and we can kind of stretch that out across the uh, genre range so that they're not all comedic or they're not all um, children oriented and they kind of can fill in holes in all the other genres. I think that's when it's going to be harder to say like, oh, this is just an animated film but it's like, when we have an animated film that can compete in tone and story with something like Silence of the Lambs that's when that distinction will be really hard to make. Yeah. That I
0: agree with. That, that I 100% agree executives. with. And there's, There we go. <laughs> they're definitely, they're, they're, we, we got there. We got there. Socrates, man. Um, but, uh, so- Socratic arguments. That's what we're here for. We we got we got to the synthesis. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there is already a country out there with a model to look at, although albeit a very different style. Um, I mean, if you look at Japanese animation, and we already have on the show – if you want to yeah, go check, the, check that out, um, they make movies that are for both kids and adults and very much marketed as dramas or sci-fis that just happen to be animated.
2: Yeah, that, no, that's a really good point. But we that, haven't got to that point in America yet. There. Yeah, we're just not
0: there in America because there. we've been in like this this prolonged adolescence of uh, Disney of Disney kids movies that are still around. Not that those are bad and not that those should go away. It's just that it would be very nice if there was a little more choice out there for those who like animated movies.
1: Yeah, We almost got there, guys. You can blame the 60s. Blame the 60s.
2: (laughs) (laughs) How long do we think it'll take before Disney stops doing this thing that they're doing right now, which is remaking all of their renaissance films that were super popular with our generation who can now buy their own movie tickets. uh, Before they start. (laughs) They need something to make their films to do like Pixar. Like, again, I I pointed this out, like, uh, I think last time on the podcast that I heard Pixar is working on um, after Toy Story 4, stopping doing sequels and working on original content. And then I saw... um, That that new trailer for the the one about the two elf brothers that go on an mm-hmm. adventure. That one looks um, pretty good. I was like, that's interesting. That's new. That's different. Um, I'm excited about that. And I just wonder, like, I I love that Pixar is part of Disney, and so we can say like Pixar is helping that's Disney true. with that. But I also feel like Pixar is Disney's cop out way of saying we can keep doing our thing yeah. because Pixar is yeah, doing a good enough cool. job of creating the original content. Oh, oh for sure. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> it's like Pixar's
0: so. the angel on our shoulders and Disney's the devil <laughs> on our shoulders.
2: Okay, cool. So let's talk about what we're going to be talking about next time, Alex. Next time on the Filmlings, we're going to be talking about one, Peter
0: Jackson. Mm. Um, if technically uh, Jonathan's favorite director is Christopher Nolan, oh, probably his man. second is Peter Jackson. I feel like that's...
2: I will yeah. say, I have not seen any of Peter Jackson's films that were not Tolkien-related, so this is going to be very interesting for you me. You've seen King Kong. Um, okay, yes, that's true. I've seen King Kong. Um, but, uh, yeah, you might notice a gap uh, in our in our lineup for next week, and we'll explain that's for, why. That's for Lord of the
0: Rings and King Kong.
2: <laughs> Lord of the Rings is being handled in a very special what manner that? because um,
0: that is, like near to sacred material in Jonathan's household <laughs> and we we must we must handle it appropriately um and of course we've Absolutely. already covered King Kong on the podcast that Peter Jackson King Kong was one of the two good King Kongs we covered along with the first King Kong which was also good and then there's the one in the middle that we don't talk about anymore um, but
2: we actually talk about it more than any other film on this podcast because Alex. it's so bad um because it's so bad but
0: Uh, We're going to be talking about three of Peter Jackson's (laughs) movies. One is Bad Taste, which I've skimmed through while selecting stills for our Instagram. And let me tell you, it is very much somebody with his friends, some like special effects, makeup and goo and uh, a camcorder like just trouncing around New Zealand making a movie and it, it looks crazy yeah. and I'm really looking forward to talking about that one. Heavenly Creatures um, from <laughs> 1994 is one of his bigger films when he's starting to get into like, you know, being able to have money behind grounded. his projects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And better put together and still covers, you know, Peter Jackson-esque material, you know, kind of out there and some dark, dark themes in it. Um, and then of course we're going to cover his most recent film, probably also the newly most recent, uh, film that we're ever going to cover on the podcast. It came out this year, they shall not grow old from 2019, still sporadically playing in some AMC theaters occasionally. Um, it's weird. It's like they're treating it like filler in their uh, schedule when they have something, have theaters open for certain days. Um but also available online at this point in time, even though it's still a little expensive, um, but still very good. Uh, I've seen They Shall Not Grow Old. I haven't seen the other two, and I'm very much looking forward to talking about the non-Lord of the Rings, non-Giant <laughs> Ape portions of Peter Jackson's filmography. Also, with this one, oh, well, we haven't actually done the Lord of the Rings yet. If we d- had done the Lord of the Rings, this would definitely make Peter Jackson our most covered uh, filmmaker, Um Well, actually, no, it wouldn't because of Hitchcock.
2: Yeah, Hitchcock will probably always have that title. Yeah. Um, Below that, we've done several Kurosawa. But um, uh, yeah, we should talk about what we are planning to do with The Lord of the Rings. uh, And we have actually already done it. And what we're going to be doing is making available a series of commentaries that uh, Alex and I have already recorded, which cover the entirety of the Lord of the Rings trilogy in the extended form. Uh, we sat down in one day and recorded commentaries over all three of these movies. Six discs in total. Um, and basically, that, that was the only way we could figure to get all of the information that uh, we would want to put into about these movies and all of the uh, kind of like ooing and aahing over them that we could. So if you would like to... Uh, listen to us talk a whole podcast through for about 12 hours over the actual film Uh, you can do that we're going to be making those available uh, through patreon and also uh, again if you donate nine dollars on coffee uh, you will get those i'm just gonna make those a bundle so if you just want to get all of them for the nine dollars uh i'll send you a zip file um And if you are on the commentary tier on Patreon, you will be able to have access to those. Um, So, yeah. And then also talking about Patreon, our latest Patreon podcast was about the uh, uh, formation of the United Artists Film Studio um, back in 1919. And we kind of talked about their first film, but Alex and I both forgot to watch it ahead of time. So we just I watched (laughs) it while we record
0: the podcast.
2: Yeah. And those Lord of the Rings commentaries probably won't be available until the Peter Jackson episode drops. But until then, you can listen to the last commentary that Alex and I both recorded uh, also, which is the long goodbye from our neo-noir episode. All right. I think that's all the stuff we got to cover. All the housekeeping. That's all of it. And that's about all the time we have for this episode. If you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at, at J.S. Satchel. And I'm at Alex Gerringer.
1: And I'm at Aaron Moe underscore J. And
3: I'm at the Blue Jay, 1994.
2: And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlings.com.
0: If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people will know what we're all
2: about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time. All right. See ya. Peace. Oh gosh! Now you're gonna get uh, me and Aaron quoting um, uh, "Emperor's New Groove" for the rest
0: of
1: the, yeah. <laughs> the rest of the thing.
2: I love
0: Emperor's New Groove. Where does that fit into the picture, is- Aaron?
1: <laughs> oh my gosh!
2: Oh man, I, that movie almost needs its own podcast. Yes, yes. Can we All can animation. we do one that
0: recaps both the movie and then the the following show, The Emperor's New School?
2: No. Maybe. No. Aaron tell tell Alex about the um the documentary and all the drama oh, that went gosh. on behind the scenes. Oh my gosh. I, Aaron and I kind of bonded over this I in college. I
1: need to send that thing because oh wow.
2: Emperor's New Groove was originally like, going to be a prince and yeah, the pauper story.
1: Um sh- and it was a musical. like uh, kingdom something. The Kingdom of the Sun. Yeah, Kingdom of the Sun. It it was Set in Mesoamerica in like this undisclosed time. It was going to be a hardcore musical, uh, like post uh, Saint Mulan set in Mesoamerica with Prince and the Popper. Mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. would have David Spade as Cusco, named somebody else. I think his name was like Manka or something. And um, oh gosh, what is it? Owen Wilson as the other guy, as Pacha.
2: Oh, I didn't even wow. realize that. <laughs>
1: <Or> <laughs> that was There's a whole documentary wow. about it. Yeah, and it was yeah, yeah, wow. And it was so much drama behind the scenes because they this was uh, directed almost directed by the same guy who did Lion King. They did so many treatments, so many storyboards. They had the film finished and everybody kept watching it and they were like, "Yeah, this is kind of boring. It's too much pathos. It's It's not, you know, it's not hitting the beats that, you know, are making us, you know, a a business. And like, I think McDonald's was threatening to pull out because the story got too dark at some point for whatever reason. You got to have
0: that McDonald's merch.
1: Oh, yeah. We learned that from Batman. And it just it turned into um, a full out buddy comedy because the guy who directed Cats Don't Dance with Warner Brothers came over and was like, hey, I can do something with this plot. Guy turns into a llama. It's funny. So
2: Sting I, Sting was a big deal. How, where does he come into all this? Oh
1: yeah, he was going. He was going to write the completes um, every song, and he was going to do the score because they were hoping to recreate the success of Lion King with Elton John.
0: Oh gosh, that's what they were hoping. <laughs>
1: yeah and then Sting was like well I'll do it as long as my wife gets to make a documentary about this because she's in film school right now and they were like sure and you got this amazing documentary that Disney does not want you to see it is so fascinating because this is like post Disney renaissance pre um, whatever they were going on in the early 2000s whatever they were doing and it was like, well, I know what is good for Disney. And then you had someone say, no, no, I know. And then it was just, it was a mess. But it was really good. It was really funny. It was different. That's what made this, you know, work so well. But it's just yeah, one of those it's shocking that such like, a good movie would came out of happen- that. <laughs> it's like, what would have happened with this? There is so much concept art. And like, Yzma was. She was more like Ursula. She was still, you know, the Yzma that She's you know. She's still like Ursula. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she was like, she wanted to um, block the sun because the sun made oh, yeah. her old. It was so... She had a great <laughs> song. <laughs> like That whoo, song I is I online. Yeah, I need to find that documentary again. Uh,
2: yeah, I'd watch that. Anyway. Anyway, the hell out of that. Yeah. It's called The Sweatbox,
1: which is yeah. not... <laughs> ill-boding at all interesting <laughs> oh it, it's well, so hey, apparently um, a
0: film student picked the title so
1: yeah yeah well staying, yeah there
0: you go